morning, Crosswalk. How are we doing? Yeah, you can talk back. It's okay. I always give you permission to talk back, even if it's during the sermon and something gets said and you're like, that's wrong. You can talk back and then you can leave. Um, no, welcome. Uh, if you are new, joining us for the first time ever, uh, we're excited to have you here. We hope you experience this to be a place of belonging uh, and uh, safety and a place just to encounter Jesus and learn to love well. Love well is our one-word mission statement and vision statement. Uh, it is what we feel called to do. So we're excited that you're here. Um, you may have noticed it's odd to have three beautiful screens up front and to only use one of them. But that's because that one apparently blew up like 45 minutes ago. Um, I, had a, I had a professor in college that said that technology is always going to fail you when you need it to work the most, which is why he never used technology. I don't think that's the right response. I think the right response in a moment like this is to say, if you would like to donate <laughs> to the fund to get a new, I, we don't know what's wrong. Uh, we'll find out. But anyway, that's, that's why it's a little wonky uh, today. And want to welcome those of you that have had a vacation recently, all of those of you posting on social media about all the fun that you're having. It's great. Um, no, we're excited. This is such a weird time for our world. Have you guys noticed in your social media feeds that like what you were doing two years ago is starting to pop up in all your memories? And you're like, man, that was, so we knew so little back then. Remember when we thought that washing our hands was going to just protect us from COVID? The good old days. Um, or the times when we started using Zoom and everybody was doing it like down here and you got to see their nostrils. That was a lot of fun back in those days. So we've learned a few things over the last years, but we're glad you're back. We want to make sure we are in, as Sharika said, our fourth week of our beloved series, going through the book of John in rapid pace, leading up to the life, death, and resurrection celebration on Easter weekend. That's two weeks away. We hope you'll come back for that. And here's a special announcement for that is that you want to be on time that day. Now, on time, I know some of you think means 10.50 or 11. That's wrong. 10.30. We've got a great special start to the worship service that day. We're really excited about, so we hope you come and join us right on time on that day. Um, but I'm going to kick off today's teaching with, well, I also wanted to say one other thing. And... Um, I'm glad that Uriel is here with us this week. He was supposed to preach with us last week, and he got sick. But I found it interesting um, that, you know, I, I found out that I needed to step in last week because he got sick uh, Saturday morning at 7, um, and then I preached. What I find interesting is several of you came up and said, man, that was your best sermon. <laughs> I put a lot of work into this stuff. Last minute was my best. I don't know what to do with that, Uriel. It's your fault. It's your fault. Um, but uh, I'm going to kick off today's teaching with a bit of a confession, but it's dangerous because I know that some of you will use the information I'm going to give you right now against me, especially if you are under the age of 25. You will use this information against me. Well, those under 25 and Sharika, but, oh, are you not, no, not 25? Oh, yeah, interesting. Um, anyway, all right, so here we go. There are not very many things in this world that... Um, that, that are annoying or frustrating to me. I'm just not a person that gets, you know, too annoyed or frustrated by many things. But I have three. And we're going to call these Pastor Patty's pet peeves. Okay? Pastor Patty's pet peeves. So, number one pet peeve is that I've been called, I've said this to some of you, I've been called many things over the course of my life that relate to my name. I've been called Veggie Patty, Rice Patty, Fatty Patty, Peppermint Patty, Paddington Bear. 
all those things I've been called. Of course, my first legal name is Padrick, spelled a little differently, so I've been called Padrake, Padrark, Padraki, all sorts of different things with extra letters and stuff. I don't know what that is. I really don't care uh, about what you call me for the most part, but if you hear Padrick and you call me Pat, P-A-T, that's not allowed. That's the one that's not okay because there's no T in my name. And I don't know if it's a trigger for an old skit on Saturday Night Live from back in the 90s, but it's a trigger. So Pat is one of those. Pastor Patty's pet peeve number two, some of you know this about me, is that if you text me after I have texted you something that is humorous and you use three letters, L-O-L, and you are not literally laughing out loud, do not LOL me. I, care, I take laughter very seriously. And I'll know if you're not laughing out loud. I'm like Santa Claus that way. I'm going to know. So don't LOL me unless you're really laughing out loud. Thank you. <laughs> if I get no other amens this morning, that's the one. That's the one. And I know right now some of you are pulling out your phones and you're sending me an LOL. <laughs> Pastor Patty's pet peeve number three is when you're a part of an ecosystem of churches, which we are of Crosswalk, we're part of a, a, a system of churches across North America, and the lead pastor for this system of churches, let's call him Pastor Tim, decides that he's going to have you focus on three chapters in one 25-minute message. Three chapters in the book of John that are chocked full of so many powerful images and messages and things to unpack. And, and yet, you've got to do that in 25 to 30 minutes. I don't like that. I don't like it at all. But that's what we're here to do today. I loved studying this week in John. John 10, 22 to 42. So the second half of John 10. John 11 and John 12. There were all sorts of good things here. But I kept coming back to focus on one, which I'll tell you about in just a moment. These chapters do have a common theme in them. As Sharika has said, they all have to do with some sort of confrontation. Last week we talked about confrontations and Jesus um, actually using the name of God to describe himself and the leaders pick up stones to stone him because he used the name of God not just to refer to someone or something else but to refer to himself. Those were dying words. And then we have more confrontations in John 10, 22 to 42. It's more confrontations with the religious leaders. Um, Jesus says that I and the Father are one. And again, they pick up stones to stone him. The author of this book, John, the beloved, is continuing to use signs that says Jesus is not only the son of God, but Jesus is God. And these people can't accept that. John 11 is such a good chapter. It is John, Jesus and the death of Lazarus. And there is so much to unpack here. Jesus' confrontation in this chapter is not so much against another person, as it is against a power, the power of sin and death. Something that came into the world in Genesis and Jesus was seeking to eradicate because this was never a part of his plan. If you're at a funeral and people don't know what to say and, and say certain things that aren't always good and somebody says, well, this is, you know, it's all part of God's plan. You just have to trust that. Let me be clear. Death was never a part of God's plan. Death was never what God wanted. And you find that in this chapter because you see something about the emotions of Jesus in this chapter. And I've always spent time looking at Jesus' 
uh, weeping in this chapter. I mean, John 13, 35, right? It's that, it's that one that everybody quotes. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And that is powerful. The word in the Greek for weep is that it was an, a sobbing, something he had to work to try to catch his breath. He was sobbing, but he wasn't sobbing and weeping about, I don't think, about Lazarus being dead because he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus and restore him to his family. I think he was weeping for the grief and pain that death causes. Jesus weeps with us because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But the emotion that I hadn't really spent a lot of time with is he also gets angry in that chapter. Right before Jesus wept, it's this anger. And in the Greek, it's not just like, oh, it's rage. It says he was filled with rage. Why? Because again, death is not supposed to be our story. And he's rageful. He wasn't even, you know, th th this is unique in the Gospels. There's a couple of places where he gets angry. People often think it's the temple when he flips over the tables, but let's be clear, he actually flipped over the tables in a very cool and calm manner. It's, it's almost more scary to think about it that way. Um, but in this moment, he's weeps and he's filled with rage over death. We're going to talk more on Easter weekend about the ultimate confrontation with death that Jesus has as a part of his resurrection. And then in John 12, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Between Lazarus being raised from the dead, which a lot of people are like, wow, this is amazing. We've never seen anything like this. And we start, they start to follow him. The religious leaders don't like that. And so they're getting more anxious to put an end to Jesus. But when Jesus marches into Jerusalem on a donkey, he seals his fate. He knew that that was fulfilling a prophecy. He knew that the religious leaders were waiting for him to declare himself as the Messiah because then they can go to the Romans and have him crucified for insurrection. And this was the sign that they were waiting for. Jesus comes out, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and now they've got him. And Jesus knew it, walking himself to Calvary. So much to unpack but I'll be honest, as I studied through all of these chapters, I couldn't get past John 10, 33. That's as far as I really got. Because there was something in that, there was a lesson that I think God's been trying to teach me over some time. Uh, but it was also something I thought important for all of us. A lesson about the beauty and the power found in the ordinary. But the ordinary that so many of us often miss because we're always looking for the big fireworks. For you see, there is always more to the story. His story, our story, there's always more. And when we're always looking and hoping to see the extraordinary, we miss so much of what God has in store for us. And I kind of look at life this way. I'm always curious. I mean, when I see talent on the stage and I look and, and, and I'm excited at what they're doing and sharing their talents and their gifts, and oftentimes the people on stage we see as extraordinary, right? But there are so many things that go into making this work, right? So when you come to church, it, it, it's easy for some of us just to, you know, we come, we enjoy the worship service, we get some coffee, we connect with a few people, we go home. But there's a ton of work that goes into making this happen, right? This isn't our space. This is somebody else's space that we get to lease. And so every Friday, we got to come in and crosswalk this place, <laughs> right? And in, in, if you follow Redlands, you, you learn that apparently as of yesterday, we're no longer called crosswalk. Anybody else see this? Now we're going to be called sidewalk as of yesterday. 
which was April Fool's. Thank you very much. Yeah, I saw that sidewalk, Portland. Man, I got to change a lot of stuff. Um, but every Friday we come in and we crosswalk this place, and then every Saturday afternoon we uncrosswalk this place. That takes a lot of work. The musicians come in, the people behind the sound table and the screen, they all come in and they put hours and hours, the kids team, the youth team, the cafe, all of this takes a lot of work. Uh, incidentally, if you'd be interested in volunteering <laughs> for any and every single one of these, Ministry Fair next week, we'd love to have you, not only because it helps, not only because, you know, some of the volunteers, they just, they just need some encouragement, some other people to jump on and help out once a month, once, once every six weeks, whatever that is. Um, but when you get connected to a ministry, you get connected to people, and that's what we're most concerned about. Um, but it takes a lot of work, right, to do this kind of stuff. Um, I, I saw my first uh, Cirque du Soleil a few years ago. I don't know if you've had a chance to see these. Uh, but this one was a Beatles theme. Uh, just side note, I'm a sucker for the Beatles. I love me some Beatles. Um, and this had all the imagery. It had the yellow submarine. It had the strawberry fields. It was awesome. You see these acrobats doing all these incredible things. But I'm looking at that stuff, and I'm thinking, you know, for every extraordinary performer that's on the stage, there's probably at least three or four people backstage helping to make that happen, right? There's people that are moving sets and, and doing lights and lifting ropes and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm always intrigued by that because there's always more going on to a story than what at first appears. And that happens a lot in the spiritual life as well. When it comes to just the, the day in and day out stuff, we're always looking for something extraordinary to happen when it actually, maybe it's in the ordinary that God is revealing himself and we're missing it because we're looking for the fireworks so much that we miss the beauty in the stars, right? And this happens in scripture. Had Moses not spent his 40 years in the desert unlearning his previous life and being retrained, he might have missed the burning bush, might have walked right by it. He was too important as a prince of Egypt, right? He would have missed it. The whisper that Elijah heard, the donkey that Balaam talked to, all these kinds of things are just kind of what happened in the ordinary. And just like those things, Jesus comes along and they are looking for a strong warrior. They're looking for a king type. They're looking for someone to take over. And Jesus doesn't fit all those molds, right? Because they were looking for a warrior Messiah, they missed the babe in the manger, the boy in the temple, and the carpenter on the cross. And we see this again in John 10, where we realize once again that Jesus, though he had the appearance of an ordinary man, born in Nazareth, son of a carpenter, he was much more than what he seemed. According to the text, as Jesus was walking in the temple, the people surround him and ask, how long are you going to keep us in suspense if you are the Messiah Tell us plainly. I'm going to stop right there for a second. This is always my response when somebody comes to me and they want to talk about a, uh, usually a hot topic in the spiritual life. And they'll say something like, well, the Bible is clear. And I always say, yeah, I think that's how the disciples felt when they talked to Jesus. They often walked away and were like, well, that was clear. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. I don't need more teaching about that. No. There was wrestling that had to take place. Jesus talked in all sorts of things. He's like, well, ah, tell us, tell us. So they're saying, like, don't tell us any more stories. Tell us plainly. Jesus replies, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is in the word I do in my Father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Now, there aren't many places in the scriptures where Jesus comes right out and says he's the Messiah, although he has done it once in the book of John already. In the book of John, he tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, 
that he's the Messiah. But other than that, it is on the miracles and the signs that he is performing. He has said he is the Son of God. He even once said he is God. But in this passage, he's referring to the signs, the miracles that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt who he was. But again, he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. He was the Messiah they needed. Right? Jesus ends his reply to the people by saying, I and the Father are one. And the people are furious. So again, just like in John 8, it says the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. That was the line that got me. You, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, they couldn't see past the surface. And though Jesus had done many incredible miracles, powerful signs, they had a predetermined um, expectation of the Messiah, and Jesus wasn't it. And the incredible thing about it is they were willing to pick up stones and stone him for being a man who claimed to be God, and yet they missed the miracle in a God who was willing to become a man. Author Eugene Peterson writes this. It's a long quote. Hang in there with me, but it's a good one. Everything that Jesus does and says takes place within the limits and conditions of our humanity. No fireworks, no special effects. Yes, there are miracles, plenty of them, but because of the most, for the most part, they are so much a part of the fabric of everyday life, very few notice. The miraculousness of miracle is, is obscured by the familiarity of the setting, the ordinariness of the people involved. This is still the way Jesus is God among us, and this is what is still so hard to believe. It is hard to believe that this marvelous work of salvation is presently taking place in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our governments, in our schools, in businesses, in our hospitals, on the roads we drive uh, down uh, and, the, and down the corridors we walk, among people whose names we know. The ordinariness of, ordinariness of Jesus was a huge roadblock to believe in his identity and work in the days of flesh. It is still a roadblock. In the ordinariness of Jesus, we learn about the incredible grace of God who meets fallen human beings where they are. We also learn that we must be careful to not judge a book by its cover, as they say. We must learn the story beneath the surface. Revel in the ordinary, knowing that it's one of the places God loves to do his work. And this principle not only applies to God and all that he's up to in the world, but it also applies to each of us learning each other's stories, seeing beneath the surface, and treating each other with the reverence and respect that all of God's children deserve. Because when we are willing to learn more and see past the ordinary, we often discover the extraordinary. We see this in a lesson uh, shared in a story told by author and lawyer Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy. If you've read the book, you may have heard the story. If you've seen the movie, it's not in the movie, um, but it is a story that, man, it really gets me every time, especially when I think about dealing with difficult people. So, Stevenson is a lawyer who spent much of his career um, fighting for people actually on death row, people that were falsely accused, people that were, um, uh, have, have been abused, taken advantage of, people with mental illness and other types of things, um, and he goes, he learns their story, he, he, he just gets more of the picture. In one of his cases, Stevenson tells of a man on death row by the name of Avery Jenkins. Avery had reached out to Stevenson several times uh, through letters, 
And the letters apparently were written so small that Stevenson actually had to use a magnifying glass to read them. Um, and he knew something, uh, there was more to Avery's story. And so as he learned on the surface and to a pair of ordinary eyes, Avery was an inmate on death row who had, uh, he was a dangerous man who was convicted of killing an elderly man. However, as Stephen learned more about Avery, he learned there was much more to his story. Not only did he suffer from severe mental illness that likely plagued him since he was a child, none of the court records about his case had anything about his mental illness. As Stevenson listened to his story, he learned that Avery's father was killed before he was born, murdered, and then his mom, uh, when he was a year old, died of a drug overdose. So he was put into the foster care system, and for him, it was a horrific foster care system. He was uh, regularly abused. He'd been in 19 different foster homes before he had turned eight. He began showing signs of intellectual disability at an early age. He had cognitive impairments that suggested organic brain damage and behavioral problems that likely resulted in schizophrenia and other serious mental illness. This obviously made fostering him a challenge, but the treatment he received was often subhuman. Unbelievably abused, locked in closets, denied food, subjected to beatings. Once his foster mom took him out to a forest, tied him to a tree, and left him. He was found by hunters three days later in very poor health. This journey of foster care continued until the age of, eight, of 17 when he was released to be homeless and fend for himself. So he learns the story and he learns that when he, was, uh, when he killed the elderly man that he was on death row for, he was actually in the midst of a psychotic episode that caused him to believe he was being attacked by demons. I have a friend who has since passed away, but this happened to him. He ended up killing his own brother in a psychotic episode. His brother was the closest person to him in the world, but he believed he was being attacked by demons. When Mr. Stevenson went to visit Avery for the first time, he pulled into the parking lot, and he saw a truck there that was really, um, it was a shrine to the old south, he said. It wasn't an uncommon sight, but there was something about this truck that drew his attention. He described the truck as one completely covered with disturbing bumper stickers, Confederate flag decals, and troubling images. Upon arriving into the prison, uh, which he had visited before other inmates, he meets this guard who was less than kind. Stevenson himself was a black man. Avery was a black man. Um, they weren't, uh, you know, they, they knew they weren't immune to these kind of racial comments and situations and treatment. But this encounter with this guard was shockingly different. The guard uh, treated him unkindly. He made him do things that he wasn't supposed to do. Like as a lawyer, he shouldn't have to be strip searched, but he was strip searched by this guy. This guy did everything, this guard did everything to make Stevenson know that he was in control. And just before he goes back into C. Avery, the guard grabs Stevenson's arm and he says, hey, do you see a truck out in the uh, parking lot there with uh, some stickers, a gun rack, and a Confederate flag? Stevenson was a little concerned. He said, well, I mean, yeah. He said, I just want you to know that's my truck. And then he lets him go back. Stevenson had to shake off the encounter to be fully present with Avery. And when he first met Avery, Avery presented as a person with some mental challenges. 
Um, but Avery was really focused on some one thing. He said, hey, did you bring me a chocolate milkshake? And Stephen's like, I didn't, I didn't, know, I didn't know I was supposed to. And, and he couldn't get past that until uh, Stevenson said, well, I'll bring you a chocolate shake next time. And then Avery was like, okay. And so they could talk. And he talked, and he learned more about his story and started to get his case together. But with every visit with Avery, it started out the same way with the question about the chocolate shake. Did you bring me a chocolate shake? And he had to promise that he would next time. But in truth, the prison would never let him bring a chocolate shake in. So they finally got a court date to bring up the information about Avery's mental health. The state wouldn't allow Stevenson to drive Avery to the courtroom, and so he just had to meet Avery at the courtroom. But when he walked up the stairs to the courtroom, outside there was a bench, and on the bench was that same guard. The guard had brought Avery. Well, now Stevenson was concerned that Avery would be in a bad mental place. He didn't know how he was treated on the ride over, and so he goes in to talk to Avery, see if he's okay. Avery apparently is okay, and they present the case. He tells his story. He tells everything that happened to Avery in foster care. He tells about his mental illness. They have doctors, and they go through all this stuff. Long story short, on that part of it, Avery gets a new sentence. He gets off of death row. He gets into uh, a place for mental health and to help him out. So that was good, right? Um, but after the case, Stevenson drove back out to that prison to make sure that Avery was okay after the ride home with the guard. When he got there, he saw the truck again. He saw the guard again, but now the guard's demeanor had changed completely. He was actually nice and respectful and didn't make him do the things that he made him do the first time. And Stevenson wasn't gonna say anything about it, but then the guard said something about it. He said, hey, I just wanna, I just wanna apologize if I wasn't kind to you before. He said, I was in that courtroom when you told Avery's story. And I, when I heard his story, I thought to myself, I didn't know anybody else had it as bad as I did. But he told about when he was in foster care and about the horrible treatment he had in foster care. And he said, he said, listening to what you were saying about Avery made me realize that there were other people who not only had it as bad as I did, but even worse. The guard realized how angry he still was about his past, how his treatment of others came from that anger, and that he needed to work on that. But then the guard told Stevenson something that really floored him. He said, on my way back with Avery from the court, I did something that I haven't told my, my uh, supervisors about, because if I did, I'd probably lose my job. He said, on the way back with Avery in the back, he pulled off the freeway, and he bought Avery a chocolate shake. I'll be honest, when I read that story, I judged that guard harshly. I was focused on Avery and his horrible treatment and his story and the case he was in. And when I read about the guard, I just thought, how cruel, how mean, what a jerk. But he had a story too. He was a broken individual who needed the same love and understanding that Avery did that I do, that we all do, for under the surface, this guard, that prisoner, his lawyer, all of us in this room are children of the living God. Every single one of us, and we all have stories, and we all have histories, and we all have hurts, and we all have pains, and we all need Jesus. Every single one of us, no exceptions. 
It took someone listening to the story and caring about the details behind the person, realizing that each of us are more than what it seems. And when you do that, you return everyone to being human again with the ability to care and love one another, which is what we're called to do. Each of us has a story. We are more than what it seems. And if we could come to learn our stories and see past the veneer and the self we present to the world, then maybe our compassion for each other would grow. Maybe we could learn to love one another as Christ loves us. And speaking of Christ, it seems throughout this book of John, we've been coming to grips that he too was more than what he seemed. More than a carpenter, more than a mere man, he was God. God who cared enough about saving us that he became one of us. And in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about how far he went to prove it to us. Again, I've shared this before. Brennan Manning, author and pastor, once said that when we get to heaven, he thinks God's only going to have one question for us. Did you believe that I loved you? Because if you do, that changes everything. But for now, don't miss the extraordinary God wrapped in the ordinary human skin. Learn the story, see past the surface, recognize that with Jesus there is always more than meets the eye, but there is also incredible beauty and grace in the blessing of the ordinary. And as you learn that story and embrace that God-man, then maybe you will be able to not only celebrate the ordinary, but see God at work in the ordinary all around us, including the person you're sitting next to, the person in front of you, the person behind you, the people you encounter in the parking lot and at work and in your home, all children of God, all with stories, all that need Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, kind, incredible Lord, I thank you so much for bringing us together to a space where we can worship, to a space where we can connect with one another, to a space where we can learn more about each other and our stories. And I hope and pray we, we can just continue our stories and our time together here in this space, in the lobby, at lunch, in our time together every week. We can come and learn more about our stories and realize, man, we all have so much to offer and so much to give. Father God, I thank you so much for the story of Jesus. I thank you that you loved us so much that you became one of us in order to save us from our own choices and to give us a better end to our story, which is really just the beginning with you. Continue to be with us as we worship. Continue to be with us throughout our day. Continue to be with us as a part of our journey as a church to love well, to love you, to love each other, to love our community, because that's what you do, and that's what you've called us Lord Jesus, we thank you for all you do for us. May we, throughout the course of this day, catch a picture of Jesus. In the precious and holy and powerful and resurrected name of Jesus Christ, I pray these things. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we